Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. You're listening to episode number 59. I'm your host, Seth Moserkast, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today we have a special episode on education. We're going to be talking about the financialization of a higher education with Max Haven. And we're also going to talk about why you shouldn't go back to school with Keo Stark, who has a new book out on that exact topic, don't go back to school. It was actually just released a few weeks ago. And for some of us who have finished school or are in school, you know, it's, it's difficult, especially when you've invested so much of your life to think about why we shouldn't go back to school. Yeah, exactly. And I actually am in school pursuing my PhD. So this topic is certainly one that I think about a lot. But I think that in the past, whereas getting more education, going and getting more degrees was a no-brainer because it always led to a better and richer life. Now, I think the whole decision has to include a much more critical analysis of your individual skills, where going to school would put you. And I really think we're in the first few years of the complete retooling of higher education and the failure of many higher ed institutions. And we'll get to more of those details in our conversations with Max and Keo, and also in our wrap-up discussion at the end of the show. That's right, Justin. And so without any further ado, let's jump right into this episode and learn about higher education. Max Haven, thanks for joining us today from Halifax, Nova Scotia, to talk about financialization, its impact on our imagination, and also higher ed, and imagining some different models of higher ed. We wanted to start out in talking about what financialization does to us, and how it impacts our thinking, and the bounds that it establishes on what we think is possible in our society. Could you dive into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Financialization is a term that the various scholars have used mostly to describe a process where the financial industry, 
which usually gets termed the fire industry, standing for finance, insurance, and real estate, has come to take an ever greater sort of control over the global economy in a whole variety of ways. So it's looking at the way that major investment banks are increasingly sort of calling the tune of even major corporations, the way that the bond markets and other aspects of the global financial architecture influence state policy and government policy around the world. So that's one side of financialization, is the increasing power of sort of financial institutions over the economy. But the other side of financialization is a more sociological and cultural side, which is the way that ideas and meanings and sensibilities from finance are creeping into everyday life in a whole variety of ways. As we'll, we'll talk about, I think we can look to let education as a place where this is happening. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that people thought of education as sort of an, an collective social good. You educated young people so that they grew up to be decent citizens, so that they grew up to be happy, engaged, informed people. Now, increasingly, we see education as an individualized investment that every student or their family is responsible for. And the idea is that, as with education, as with all sorts of other areas of our social life, we're increasingly expected to understand them as personalized investments. And this goes for all sorts of things. I mean, another example is what we now consider charity work or volunteer work. You know, it used to be at one point that you did that because it was your contribution to society. Increasingly, young people are being asked to do that because it's supposed to be some sort of investment in your resume. You'll be able to use those skills that you learned while volunteering down at the animal shelter to get a job in this field or that field. So there's a way that we're all being encouraged to think of ourselves instead of as citizens or instead of as concerned members of a society or community, as investors. So that's sort of the other side of financialization. And what that does in terms of what we're able to imagine is it sort of fundamentally shuts down what we think of as possible futures. If we're always asked to think about our own individualized future as a sort of economic investment and to reinterpret all of our experiences and our relationships as investment relationships, then the ability to think about sort of collective futures, collective alternatives, the possibility of a different sort of society, a different sort of economy, that begins to recede from view, which is very dangerous. So I'm thinking back in time and I'm thinking about farmers or, you know, poor people who needed to have children as investments to make sure that they had enough money in retirement and to work on the farm. And every time they had another child, there was another farm hand or another person to help with the business of some sort. I'm wondering how long this trend towards financialization has been going on and what were we like before this? Well, I think people think about the future, that's an element of the human condition, is to be able to reflect back on what the future might look like and prepare for the future. And certainly, I think in other societies and in other times, people have done that in various ways. I think what's significantly different and what's emerged over the last 30 or 40 years is the insistence that that future always speak a purely economic language and that that economic language be sort of universal. So it's no longer that we're just thinking, okay, what are we going to need in five years, 10 years? In fact, there's less and less thinking about how are we going to reasonably and collectively plan for our future, whether it's as a country or as individuals or families. And increasingly, it's how am I going to make sure I have enough money in this period in front of me to be able to purchase the things I need? It's a very dramatic narrowing of that imaginary landscape of the future. So, you know, to a certain extent, for sure, people have always sought to predict, sought to 
to imagine what's coming in the future and to prepare for it. But now the only means of doing that increasingly is to, to sort of put it in this language of investments. So now I have cousins growing up and a lot of them are, you know, going into high school. And as soon as they would get into high school, they would be thrown into this hyper competitive environment to get into the best colleges and universities. And, you know, you have to work really hard on your PSATs. So that way you can get placed in the best classes so you can prepare for the SAT. And then that way you need to get a really high SAT score so you can compete for these limited spots at the top tier universities. And so that's really the model of what a lot of our youth are facing when they're looking at higher education. And what do you think about this process and then how it shapes the outlook that it kind of places on life for the rest of your life? I think it's disastrous in a lot of ways. On the one hand, it does produce a very streamlined set of individuals who are paranoid and desperate to seek the affirmation of certain institutions in order to be able to get the qualifications they need in order to get the jobs that they think will give them a certain level of security and prosperity. Why we choose to put our children through that is beyond me. It's a really horrifying thing to imagine that even as early as, you know, before birth, parents are increasingly having to think about how they're going to get their children into the right preschool centers, how they're going to get their children into the right schools, high schools, etc. I think what comes out at the other end of that sort of meat grinder of a system are a sort of increasingly frantic economic personality for whom everything has to be a sort of invested opportunity and for whom their only relationship to other human beings or one of their only relationships to other beings is competitive. And I think that's extremely dangerous given the sort of challenges that face humanity and that face all sorts of human communities in the coming years. To the extent that we think that we're all just competitive individuals striving to make our mark on the free market, we're completely unable to deal with the problems of environmental degradation, global warming, and not to mention global poverty and global inequality that are so plaguing our societies today. So we have this kind of model of competition. We're born into it and it's bred in us through all of this hyper competition for even education so we can get a job. But a lot of people would say that, you know, competition is this state that we have to be in in order to compete with China or Japan or these other school systems that we have to face up to and in order to innovate to find the solutions for all of the future. So what would you say to kind of those people who feel that competition is the only way we're going to find this system of, of education and educate the future? And then also what's really the alternative to that? Well, I mean, to those people, I would say we need to take a step back and ask who the we is and why we need to compete with these sort of shadowy others overseas and what we're sacrificing in order to meet those sort of competitive ends. I mean, there's a lot of talk about needing to compete in the global economy, but if our involvement in a global economy is predicated on forcing our children to enter into a competitive mindset from as early as they can think, is it worth it? And do we really want to be integrated into that sort of global economy that is going to demand that everyone needs to see themselves as utterly sort of lone wolf individuals striving to achieve against everyone else in this sort of state of nature? I think not. And I think that the alternative is that 
Yes, as long as we continue with the social model that we have in place today, which is a highly competitive form of neoliberal capitalism, then sure, everyone is going to need to compete for increasingly scarce resources. I think we need to think about having a very different system that provides for everyone's needs. And then we can sort of think about how we would produce the sorts of people that we want in that system. And we could think about education not as sort of a competitive accumulation of knowledges and credentials and start thinking about it as a way to create a new and different society. So I think that's a really important point that you're making there. The accumulation of knowledge with the end goal of just having that knowledge in your brain to do whatever you want to do versus what it is right now, which is the accumulation of knowledge and skills so that you can go out and get a fancy job and pay back all the loans that you make. So maybe what we need to do or what you're saying here is that we need a shift of the end goal. We need to shift into something that promotes unity and promotes the the opposite of capitalism is that is that what you're kind of pointing towards yeah i think so i think in the end it's it would have to be a move away from at very least the model of capitalism that we are presently under i personally think from my research that i would prefer to see a non-capitalist society but many very reasonable people make an argument that there are other forms of capitalism that don't insist that we sort of sacrifice everything to the free market So yeah, I think that the great education theorist Paulo Freire made the distinction between the banking model of education, where the student is treated like sort of a bank where you deposit knowledge and then sort of call it back later. And Freire linked that banking model of knowledge to how you need to produce compliant workers for an industrialized society, which is that you use the education system to train people to be compliant, to train people to internalize commands and regurgitate knowledge at will. And I think he was posing against that a very humanist model of education where students and teachers together would be in the process of constantly learning and teaching one another, where we would affirm and validate people's experience, and where we would work together to make education a means to make our society a better place, what he called pedagogy of the oppressed. And I think that we can add to that now that not only do we have this system where sort of people are taught in schools to be sort of compliant workers, they're also increasingly taught to embrace a world through a highly financialized lens where they see everything and all experiences as investments that they can then sort of individually call back to themselves. And it's in some ways even more insidious than just training everyone to be compliant and sort of complacent, docile workers because it implies that we should all model ourselves on the ideal of the sort of financial entrepreneur, that we're all competitive individuals. You know, at least you could say of the older industrial models of capitalism where the powers that be wanted those compliant workers, that those compliant workers could then make common cause with one another. They could see that they were the lower order of society and that they were being exploited. In a society where we train our young people and for everyone to see themselves as a little Warren Buffett, it's really difficult for people to imagine what brings us together and what sorts of solidarities we would need to build if we wanted to actually have a different society. Now you bring up an interesting point and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot is that capitalism kind of promotes education as its tool to get larger and larger and you can get more and more money and you can be more and more entitled by getting more educated. Now shift that focus into making education a right for every person on this planet. You kind of take away from the capitalistic model. You kind of say that even if you start off being you know, nothing or less educated than other people in uh, other countries, you have the opportunity to be at the same intellectual level as anybody 
anywhere in the whole world. And I think that that model is becoming more and more relevant as internet communication becomes more and more prevalent. And it becomes a great leveling factor for the whole world. I mean, you can no longer exploit a third world country whose population is educated to the same level as a first world country, I would say. So what is the role of education then in making equal rights and equal footing for the whole world? I think it's complex. On the one hand, it's very tempting to think that if we gave everyone equal access to education, then they'd all be able to sort of compete on an equal footing, and then the people with talent and brains would rise to the top, and those people should be given sort of better jobs within society because they're very useful in coordinating the labor of others. But there's some problems with that. So, for instance, even if we were to say, okay, the most elite university, like Harvard, has to offer all its courses online for free, which they're starting to do, actually, in many, at a lot of these elite universities. They're starting to offer some of their courses online for free. It would still be a model of education that was forged within a highly competitive capitalist society, and it's still a very conservative model of education in many ways. So what we're doing is we would, let's say we're talking about law. We're going to put all of Harvard Law School's law education online for free. Everyone can download it. Everyone can learn everywhere in the world. What we're doing there is privileging a very specific model of American, previously British, legal jurisprudence that fundamentally privileges and elevates one sort of legal framework over a whole bunch of others. So we're saying to all of the indigenous people around the world who've had their own legal systems for millennia that those legal systems are basically irrelevant and the Chinese legal system is irrelevant and the legal system that's been in the works through in Islamic cultures for centuries and centuries and centuries is irrelevant. So there's a way that the promise of the internet and the promise of being able to educate everyone is really, really exciting and I don't want to diminish that. But we also have to ask, what is education for? Is it just to offer everyone a certain standardized level of knowledge that can then allow them to compete within the economy? Or is education more part of building community, building solidarity, building sustainable relationships with the earth and with one another? And I think if we're looking at sort of the latter, at those other examples, then we would need to think about, yeah, okay, the internet and technology is an amazing opportunity to allow way more people than ever had access to education, access to literacy, access to global understandings. But we also need to think about how we can transform local universities into sites where we can experiment with new ways of knowing, new ways of communicating with one another, and ways of bringing out sort of what we would call like subjugated knowledges, knowledges that don't get accepted or don't get valorized as well. And seeing not to throw out the sort of the canon of Western legal jurisprudence, but to look at how that might speak to other traditions and how we might think about building sort of grassroots equality, solidarity, and democracy through those institutions. So in talking about our institutions of higher education, there's been this model where you have these elite institutions like the Harvards and the Yales and the Stanfords of the world that have massive endowments and tremendous resources, and they bring on the top-tier professors. And then there's kind of all the other schools that just 
in many ways aspire to be Harvards and then some that don't aspire to be the Harvard and then they go and do their own things. But all of these models of higher education that we have in North America have fallen prey to these ideas of financialization. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how financialization has impacted higher ed and actually the ways that our institutions are run. Well, it's a slow and sorted process, and it works somewhat differently in different institutions. I mean, large, very famous, prestigious universities have, for a long time, really been quite tied into the financial sector. On the one hand, they've always relied on endowments from wealthy individuals, and often those individuals gain their wealth through finance. Those endowments are then invested with financial companies in the markets. And so in the wake of 2008, the financial crisis, a lot of universities lost huge amounts in their endowments. But in some ways, that's only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I think the biggest way that the university is tied into this model of financialization is through student loans, which in the United States alone have now recently topped a trillion dollars worth of debt owing. And in fact, the highest default rates on any type of debt are in student loans now. So there's a way that the university as an institution, whether we're talking about sort of the big famous institutions or the smaller, more local institutions, all run on a financialized model because they all depend on students having access to debt in order to go into them. But in addition to that integration with financialization, increasingly universities are turning towards the financial sector and turning towards financial models of management in order to keep themselves going. So we've seen, for instance, in the last 30 years, this sort of massive explosion of university administrators. It used to be that faculty tended to run the university themselves. They might hire a president and some vice presidents and some accountants. But it generally was that faculty had a lot of control over the curriculum and over the direction of the university. Over the last 30 years, we've seen the massive growth at almost every university of these cadres of senior managers who are increasingly trying to turn universities towards a much more corporatized direction. And that also serves the interests of the financial system as a whole, in the sense that if universities are increasingly corporatized, they become spaces where, for instance, military contracting companies or biotech companies or pharmaceutical companies can invest money into research, have it matched by the university, sometimes have it matched by the public sector, and get a tax break for, quote-unquote, donating this money to the university. Meanwhile, out the other end, they get to copyright and patent the new developments that might come out of the university. We're also seeing that over the last especially 10 and 15 years, universities have gone on a building spree, anticipating increased enrollments. But in order to build all of these fancy new buildings that they're building in almost every university across the continent, they're going highly into debt to banks and bondholders, which further integrate the universities into the financial system. And also universities are increasingly becoming used as a vector by which property development can occur. So university is technically, most of them are non-profit institutions. There are a few profit, for-profit institutions, but relatively few. They can be used to move into different areas of the city, building new buildings. The bottom floor is open for business. You know, you get your Starbucks in there or your mini mall or whatever. But they also are used as hubs or anchors for gentrification in certain neighborhoods. So you get a new building in a downtown campus that then is used as a sort of way to bring in sort of upper middle class lifestyles and art centers and all this in, into disadvantaged communities without actually sort of an attention to what those communities might actually need. So there's all of these ways that over the last 20, 30, 40 years, the university has really become much more integrated into a global financial system that again is not necessarily about, that has very little imagination for long 
long-term needs of community or society, and is really fixated on short-term profitability, making the deal and the next deal and the next deal and the next deal. That's a very interesting point. And what I was thinking about is as these students are being put through these university systems and they're coming out with $200,000 of debt after going to MBA school or law school or something like that, and they're looking around for jobs and they're not finding any, any of them except for the retail ones or something that doesn't really use their skills that they went to university for. I'm wondering if universities are going to retain their value and their relevancy in our society. I wonder, I'm wondering if they're going to be moving more towards a for-profit kind of model like a Phoenix University where you take your courses online and they give you a, a piece of paper that says you've passed the requisite classes and it doesn't become like the babysitting program that it is for high school students graduating from their elementaries through high school education. Is it going to transform in this way? Yeah, I think it is. And I think that it's it's a very dangerous trend. You know, the big hype in the last couple of months in the sort of the post-secondary education journalism circuit has been so-called MOOCs, or uh, Massively Open Online Courses. And the idea that a lot of sort of superstar universities are now offering sort of cut-rate online courses where you might have thousands of students in there and their engagement is mostly with one another through chat rooms. The statistics on them show that very few of the students who enroll in these courses graduate. But I think what we are increasingly seeing is a race towards higher, quote-unquote, quality credentials. So people want to have a course from Caltech or Harvard or Yale or some of these other sort of major schools under their belt because they think it'll give them a leg up on the job market. But of course, as you mentioned, both for those schools and for the smaller universities, those jobs just simply don't exist. I mean, you can look here in Canada, we have a huge crisis that the universities have graduated far, far too many teachers. So right now there are tons of people with education degrees who simply can't find work. And those people are increasingly working in the service sector. And it's happening in almost every field. And we're always told the answer that governments give constantly when there are these major economic shakedowns is, oh, well, workers who are getting fired from their traditional occupations need to go back and get educated so they can find a new job. And you get a little more money or a little more loan guarantee money from various levels of government, hoping that education can be a sort of panacea for an economic crisis. But the problem is that we are basically sacrificing people and especially youth to an economic system that really has no use for them. And a university is increasingly serving, in, in many ways, as a means to get people into debt so that they can't afford to make other life choices, so that they have to take the crappy service sector job. And so that someone, usually in the private sector, can make a great deal of money off of the interest that they can consistently charge people on their student loans. So it's quite a sadistic system in many ways. It's very, very perverse. And I think that what it does is it chews up and spits out on the other end individuals who are so afraid of falling into debt, into default, that they're willing to accept terrible wages and working conditions. And people who are so happy to have a job, even if they're way overqualified for that job, that they're less and less willing to speak out, to demand unionization, to demand labor rights. I've seen this being a union organizer in the university sector, organizing with graduate students. And similarly, in, in, the, in the world of universities, universities are now churning out way more PhDs than are necessary to fill the ranks of the professoriate. In fact, now we're looking at, at many universities having 70% of their courses taught by adjunct or part-time or temporary faculty 
what union organizers who are trying to point these things out to, to students and to university workers who are going through the system are finding is that increasingly people are sort of bl have blinders on. They realize that they're going heavily into debt to invest in an education. They have a sense that they're not going to get the job that at least getting the job they think they're going to get is going to be extremely difficult. So there's a sort of a, a stepping away from any collective action on their part. So everyone's just trying to get ahead as individuals. It becomes a very individualized process where people see themselves merely as a sort of competitive souls on the free market, not making common cause, even though that common cause could in many ways improve the situation. I wanted to jump on that in just a second here, but I pulled up some numbers for university administration and at UBC, for example, here in Vancouver, we have 9,727 administrative staff and only 3,694 academic staff. And the numbers are quite shocking also for Harvard, which has 12,000 administrative staff roughly and about 2,000 academic staff. So there's a big Canadian university, a big U.S. university, and they're absolutely huge numbers of administrative staff, and that has to inflate the cost and lead to this education inflation that we're talking about. But with that aside for a moment, the big trend now is so many students that graduated post-2008 or right in 2008 with a bachelor's degree went into the labor market, found themselves underemployed at jobs that really were quite miserable. And so, as you were mentioning a moment ago, going back to school for graduate school in order to hopefully find a job that had more meaning or paid better or whatever it may be. And so the trend now is going back to graduate school. Is that really the solution, going back to graduate school, or is there something deeper going on here? No, it's, it's not a solution if your ambition is to find permanent, steady, middle-class job. But the reason is that those steady, permanent, middle-class jobs are just disappearing. There was a period in North American history that we sort of call the post-war compromise, where the, the sort of capitalist class, business owners, were so sort of afraid of the menace of the Soviet Union and the rising of workers in social movements, that after the First World War and the Great Depression and sort of coming out of the Second World War, there was this idea that there would be a welfare state that would take care of people. Part of that welfare state was post-secondary education, where, you know, supposedly anyone who had the marks could go to university. They might have to pay a little for it, but they could go. The other side of it was an improvement in wages and working conditions and job permanence that led to the emergence of the sort of middle class as we know it. But since the 1970s, we've entered into what, what is called the neoliberal era, where there have been massive cuts to public funding for public institutions, including universities, and where increasingly, because people are told that the companies that they work for need to meet the demands of the global economy, they've been forced to accept more and more casualization, more and more flexibilization at work, which has led to more and more part-time work, lower wages when adjusted for inflation, and fewer and fewer of those sort of good, decent, middle-class jobs that might allow you to support a family and have some job security. So people think that by going back to university, they'll be able to get the credential to get what some of the few jobs that exist, but ironically, those jobs are disappearing at an extremely fast rate. That said, I think it's great that people are going to university. I think that universities have a great amount to offer. I think that everyone in society should have the opportunity to do so. And I think people should have the opportunity to do so, to go to what the equivalent of graduate school, which is to look more deeply at issues, to be able to do independent research. But it should be free. I mean, that should be something that we're offering to all members of our society. 
because it makes us a better society, because it improves our human capacity to think and to understand. So I think what we're dealing with now is people really going to graduate school because they have nothing else to do with themselves. And universities, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, are becoming sort of massive human warehouses for a society that has no use for these people. And that's highly problematic. In other circumstances, that has led to massive social uprisings, when people are sort of idled by the economic system and are made to feel useless and worthless. They have typically in the past rose up and demanded a different system that actually makes use of their time and energies. I think the menace now is that the warehousing that's going on today has been combined with this sort of individualist competitivism such that instead of people sort of pointing to the system and saying the system's the problem, they increasingly point to convenient others and say they're the problem. So sort of the other of the weak has become sort of China, that now the Chinese economy is booming and they're taking everyone's jobs. Or they point to immigrants and saying, oh, well, all of these highly skilled immigrants are coming over and stealing our good jobs and all that. It's very easy for people who've been raised in a culture of competitive individualism to identify other people as other competitive individuals and blame them for the problem when in fact the problem is much more systemic and will require much more systemic solutions. big problems with universities, well there's so many problems with universities, it's hard to know where to start. If you took hundred dollar bills, stacked them on top of each other until you reached a trillion dollars, it would be over 678 miles high. This is what Americans owe in student loans. It's greater than America's credit card debt, or auto debt, and second only to the mortgage debt in the United States. The money the universities need to, to draw now because of shrinking public support, fundraisers, so they, they really promo the big kind of high profile uh, you know, research achievements, some massive machine they've got. They've been endowed with this amount of money, so they're sucking up to, to money and devising the curriculum and business schools with names of big corporate donors and so on. It's become very corporatized. The university become very top-down. According to a new report released by the Center for American Progress, five of the world's top ten oil companies, ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP, Royal Dutch Shell, and ConocoPhillips, have been giving millions over the last decade to support energy research at America's top universities. They also pose the risk of hijacking the university's research agenda and compromising academic independence. Basically, what I did was I looked at ten large-scale agreements between uh, universities and the bigger oil companies and energy companies more broadly. And uh, what I found was, was pretty staggering. I mean, nine of the ten agreements allow the industry sponsor 
to uh, basically control the, the overall governance of the Research Alliance on campus. To me, what a university requires is really radical democratic uh, democratization, hugely more involvement of students, you know, hugely more interdisciplinary critical debate about directions of universities, not just leaving it up to some board of governors who are all the, you know, the, the wealthy people in the community. So making, and then internships where students come in and actually do really experiential learning, whether it's, you know, running a, a local organic farm in the university that supplies a, you know, a cooking school or whatever. So much more integrated with what it means to be alive and thinking and critical and not just not just a training ground for the professions for understanding how the economic system actually works not having the real critical stuff programmed out by a hierarchical education system that wants to just train good you know consumers but understanding critical structures of capitalism or of the role of the state or the role of you know corporations or whatever the Eurozone crisis has sparked fears of a lost generation with youth unemployment at an all-time high. With more than 49% of 16 to 24 year olds now out of work, it's Spain that has particularly suffered. We've come here today to one of the universities in Spain to speak to some of the students here. What's it like to be a student at this time in the country? The um, future you can expect when unemployment rates are already this high the schools are, are becoming a private business it's hard to tell if you're gonna find a job when you when you finish studying if you can actually do some college studies because if you have to pay really high price for them you're not even gonna be able to go to college at all you know for a long time it's been you go to college you go to university you get a degree and then that's your ticket to a good job and that ideology is still insinuated into school you know it's in high school, right? You have to get good grades to get into a good college and so forth, you know? And then you graduate and it's not true. You don't get a good job. You can't find a job. So, ah, well, I guess I'll go to grad school, you know? And then you get your master's degree. You still can't find a job. So then you get your PhD, you know? And, that, and the whole system is falling apart. You know, even with your PhD, you still don't get a job necessarily or not one that really merited all of those years. You sacrifice your whole youth, you know? So I would say if you're in this machine, or contemplating stepping into it, or you're in the midst of it, the only really good reason to be in academia is if that's the best place there is for you to learn something that you're passionate about. And if you're in academia for any reason other than passion, then do something else. And if you don't know what to do, then don't do anything. And sometimes the best thing to do is nothing, especially when you don't know what to do. I mean, if you know what to do, then the best thing to do is that. But if you don't know what to do, Maybe you should wait until you do know what to do and enjoy life a little bit. And maybe slowing down is more of what we need and not always hurrying and pushing ourselves. That's kind of what's at the root of the problems to begin with. And we can live in a different way and uh, not be so crazy, you know? Ben, what are you doing? Well, I would say that I'm just drifting here in the pool have you thought about graduate school? No. Would you mind telling me then what those four years of college were for? What was the point of all that hard work? You got me. Now listen, Ben. I think it's a very good thing that a young man, after he's done some very good work, should have a chance to relax and enjoy himself and lie around and drink beer and so on. But after a few weeks, 
I believe that person would want to take some stock on himself and his situation and start to think about getting off his ass. The Robinsons are here. Hi, Ben. What are you doing with yourself these days? Oh, not too much. Taking it easy. <laughs> That's what I'd do if I could. Nothing wrong with that. You're listening to episode number 59 of The Extra Environmentalist. We're talking with Max Haven about the financialization of higher education. Right now, most of our higher education and even much of our lower education is just preparing kids in very much the same kind of assembly line way as we have for the past 100 years. We've been pushing kids through these schoolings so that they could take their places in the workforce. And I'm wondering, why don't people understand that we are pushing kids in these directions so that they can become part of the system that really doesn't support them in an emotional way or it puts them into a, a factory? You know, it's, it's, it's just like a grinding and anyone can be taken out and be put in. There's a kind of a feeling of being a cog in a system and being replaceable. I'm wondering why it is that people don't seem to realize that being a part of the system is not really emotionally fulfilling, and it's, it's very downtrodden in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a really good question, and I ponder it often, as do many. It would be easy, to some extent true, to blame a sort of series of media representations for that, especially since the 70s. We've been bombarded with images of self-made individuals who've gone against the odds, who've earned everything that they have, and who are sort of the pit fighters of global capitalism. And so we sort of imagine that we're all responsible for our own fate. And so education seems like a means towards these sort of very highly materialist ends. And by the same token, the media representations that we've grown up with I think increasingly are hyper-individualist, so they don't show us any models of being happy in community. In fact, in the vast majority of films and television shows, communities are represented as stifling, as backwards, as conservative. So I think that's part of it, but I also think that it's that we live in a highly isolated and isolating consumerist society, which means that even if you recognize that the system is fundamentally broken, and I happen to believe that most people recognize that. I mean, you can stop at any truck stop or any Dunkin' Donuts in the States or Tim Hortons in Canada or any after-school meeting, and if you get talking to people, everyone recognizes that the system's broken. But what do you do with your kids in a broken system? If you have no sort of way into social movements, if you have no... Uh, way into imagining the world as a different place, then, of course, even though you know the system's broken, you're going to want your children to be in the best possible position to survive that broken system. You, you will plan before they're born, if you have the means to send them to the right preschool and the right school and the right high school and the right university. And if you don't have the means, well, you may try and push them to get really great marks so they can get a scholarship. There's a certain extent that people are ensnared by a very pernicious ideology that makes them think that this society is natural and normal. But to a much greater extent than that, I think it's just that people are making individualized, pragmatic decisions, and we lack a language to speak about how we might make a collective transformation rather than just sort of individual, advantageous choices. 
And we dive into that theme a lot on our show because so many people envision the end of capitalism as people hold up in their apocalypse bunkers with guns and gold. <laughs> and that's a theme that con continually comes up as everybody sees that the economic system is failing, but everyone imagines that as its uh, potential end state. And so you are part of this Edufactory collective and, and have spoken about that. Could you talk a little bit about the Edufactory and how the model of higher education that we use today is turning more and more into like the factories of early capitalism and then some of the ways that this group is starting to re-envision universities in higher education. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Edufactory is a transnational collective of university-based activists and scholars. So it began with scholars in Italy and England looking at the sort of massive neoliberal transformations of the post-secondary sector in those countries and in Europe more broadly. This includes the imposition of tuition fees in Britain, where they hadn't been imposed to the extent that they were before. And in Italy, it took the form of like EU meetings around what was called the Bologna process, which was an attempt to standardize post-secondary education across Europe but carried with it implications for increased tuition fees, for the commercialization of research, and for the commodification of education more generally. And there's, of course, a huge number of activists from various walks of life and various ideological standpoints who sort of arose to critique this. But the Edge of Factory Collective, or the, the founders of it, and I'm not one I joined relatively recently, their vision, which I, I, I think is quite astute, is that we can't separate what's happening to the university from the, the major transformations of global capitalism. And that's a form of capitalism that isn't just interested in sort of exploiting workers in factories. It's also increasingly interested in exploiting our social, emotional, and intellectual lives. So if you think about the rise of the service sector, you can sort of see how this works. If you're working on the front lines of McDonald's, or you're working in the sort of creativity labs of Google, you're not just being asked to sort of show up and put your body in a, in a seat or in behind a till all day. You're asked to give service with a smile. And at some place like Google, you're asked to sort of put your entire creative person on offer to your employer. You're asked to cultivate skills and sensibilities and ideas outside of your actual workplace and sort of hand them over to an intermediary corporation who will then sort of package them and sell them. And increasingly, a number of scholars have been looking at this, identifying it as a moment of what they call cognitive capitalism. That's not just interested, again, in bodies. It's also interested in minds. And we can also take a look at this in terms of the growth of consumerism. So capitalism no longer just wants to exploit our bodies in factories. It wants us to be consumers. It wants us to identify with a consumer ethos, to peg our subjecthood and our identities to how much we have and how much we buy. So... In that context, then, what is the role of the university? And the argument of Edufactory is that if you think about the industrial period, even in the industrial period during the Industrial Revolution, the vast majority of humanity did not work in factories. I mean, most people of humanity were at that time fighting against colonialism and imperialism imposed by the West, and that colonialism and imperialism generally wanted them to work on plantations, growing or harvesting the primary materials that could be used in the Industrial Revolution. But even if we look at Europe and America, where the Industrial Revolution was sort of at its peak, the vast majority of people didn't work in factories. It was a minority. But the factory came to define society. It became the most productive institution. It became the institution into which all other aspects of life needed to feed. So 
housewives were enlisted to produce husbands and sons who could work in the factories. And I should mention, of course, that you know, right up until the First World War, there were often way more women than men in factories. This idea of the housewife that we have is quite recent. In any case, the factory became the central institution of a society into which all the resources fed and out of which all the commodities came to be sold on the market and which was the main source of wealth for the capitalist class of the day. That hasn't changed in many ways. In the present moment, there are, of course, factories. There are increasingly less factories in the United States and Europe, and increasingly more factories in maquiadoras in Mexico, increasingly in places like Brazil, in sweatshops in China, in the sort of the massive industrial apparatuses that are being built in places like Shenzhen or in Taiwan. So those factories still exist, but if we think about that move towards cognitive capitalism, at very least in the West, in North American Europe, then we can see the university emerging as a very, very central, if not the central institution. Because what happens when you go into it, right? You borrow money in order to buy a credential, in order to improve the sorts of intellectual work you can do, the sort of emotional work you can do to create yourself as a, an identity. So the edufactory idea is a sort of thought experiment. What if we thought about the university as the edufactory, as this sort of central institution of a new type of capitalism? Which isn't to say that all those other types of capitalism are gone, not at all. But also if you think about the processes of globalization, of the way that plantations and mines feed into factories, feed into a global consumer society, who's managing all of that? Who's designing that whole system? Who's making that global apparatus run? They're university-educated people. There's an intellectual cognitive work going on that makes that entire system possible. So there's something that's shifted in the way that capitalism works, and that's what Edufactory is trying to look at, as well as the way that the university has increasingly become industrialized, that education has become a sort of stamped-out product where students are sort of fed in one end and come out the other end with ridiculous caps and gowns on, ready for a new sort of workforce. Now, it seems to me that factories sprang up and then the cities kind of formed around them to support these factories. And in doing so, we kind of formed these huge megaplexes that surrounded the factory kind of model, putting out goods, putting out consumable goods. And the educational systems kind of formed along with the cities, which put people into the factories. So if we back up a second and we're talking about the free education model as a way to kind of maybe make a break from this kind of city factory model that promotes capitalism, is there a way that we could possibly, using a free education kind of idea system, which would be a very different basis for the education model than our current universities, can we make a break that in that way and kind of go down a different path and use universities as vehicles and engines of change to kind of move our society forward and away possibly from these capitalistic consumerist ideas? I think absolutely. And that's the reason I still continue to work within universities. And it's often very difficult because they're often dedicated to quite the opposite. To a certain extent, the idea of the university is always a bit utopian. It's the idea that we can have an institution through which we can work on our society. It's a sort of reflexive 
idea that we could create something sort of part of but sort of outside of our social apparatuses and use it to educate new generations to take ownership and responsibility for their communities. The way we're doing that right now is a utopian neoliberal university. It's a university that produces individuals and produces modes of thought germane to a highly competitive free market capitalist system. But I think there's a lot of opportunities to turn that around. And even within the neoliberal university that exists today, there's tons and tons of people doing amazing things, both within the formal curriculum and beyond, to try and think about different ways of building community and different ways of changing society. So for instance, I think there's lots and lots of programs or aspects of different programs in geography, sociology, cultural studies, English, especially what in the States gets called ethnic studies and indigenous studies, where people are trying to reimagine what the university is for and to whom the university is accountable. Is the university merely accountable to the market to produce good workers, or is it accountable to community and to society more broadly? And how might those relationships be reformed? I think those are the sorts of questions that a whole variety of people are working on but unfortunately, as the university becomes more and more marketized, there's less and less room and less and less time for that sort of critical experimental thinking. In terms of the thing about cities, I mean, I think it's interesting that now universities are increasingly looked to as major economic hubs or drivers of global cities. A lot of smaller cities especially are increasingly looking to their universities as a means to generate business, as a means to spin off new businesses, as a means to attract investment. When I was doing my graduate work, I was in Hamilton, Ontario, which is a bit like Pittsburgh or Baltimore in the States, a post-industrial city, very poor urban core. And where steel mills had once been the main industry, now the university was quickly emerging as the main sort of industrial driver. And the university was then asked to perform a whole variety of tasks that the university was never designed to take on. For instance, business development parks, new partnerships with local and non-local businesses. And as I mentioned earlier, too, universities are increasingly enlisted as a vector for real estate development. So building new campuses to anchor new creative or intellectual work zones or new sort of yuppie neo-suburbs in the middle of the city or what have you. There's a real struggle going on about the very soul of the university right now. And there's a lot of potential for that but increasingly the opportunities to think about a different sort of use or a different possibility for the university are being squeezed out. And one example that I can draw on from UBC is we just constructed a massive new pharmaceutical research complex that was tremendously costly, but is built on this model where you build the top facilities and bring in the top researchers, and then the research that comes out of there provides money for patents, and then that helps to fund more and more university operations. And so if you look at the way the campus has developed over the last decade or so, anything that can generate patents has received new buildings on campus. And anything that is involved with the arts or humanities is basically in this increasingly older section of campus with more and more rundown buildings. And I know that's not just UBC example. There's many other institutions across North America that have followed the same model. But what is it that our universities should be teaching? You mentioned subjugated knowledges earlier in our interview. And so much of our vision about the future that's in mainstream society is kind of this Jetsons future where you know we have robots that take care of everything for us and we have nutrition and our pills every day. Do you think we can have a university that exists without techno-optimism? And if that existed, what would it look like? What would it be teaching? Yeah, that's a great point and a great question. 
You know, it's interesting that the idea of the university in the post-war moment was really tied to that sort of Jetson's future. The idea that, like, the promise was that if everyone worked hard and committed themselves to sort of enriching the capitalist system, that not only would the rewards of that system be more widely shared in the way that people would be allowed to have middle-class lifestyles, where they'd have a, their own home, their own appliances, etc., but that eventually we'd be working towards sort of the end of manual labor itself, that we would be liberated from work if we just trusted the captains of industry to sort of make the best use of our time and efforts. And of course, that never came to pass. So I think the university, at least in its sort of post-war appearance, as a sort of popular mass university that enrolled a lot of students rather than just the sons and daughters of the elites, that's always had a sort of techno-utopian idea. And that techno-utopianism, as you guys have mentioned and illuminated on your show many times, is very much responsible for this idea that we don't actually need to solve the problems that are facing humanity and our societies and communities today. We can just wait for technology to fix the problem, which is crazy. So I think in terms of thinking beyond that model, I think we could imagine universities as a means by which we can bring our communities back together relocalize a good deal of production and really start to think about how to build a society that is in harmony or at least builds a new relationship with the earth and nature. I think we can definitely mobilize the university as a space to help us rethink what democracy would mean and what sort of solidarity would mean. And we can use it as a place to build up our capacity for empathy and working together. And I think those things are happening to a certain extent on all campuses. I think there are activist groups and activist professors and others who are trying to use the university as a space to do that, but we're facing a very, very large force, which is that the administrations that have been hired over the last 10 to 15 to 20 years really want the university to serve that corporate model. And increasingly, students who are going to the universities don't want it to be a space to think about alternatives, because I think they sense intuitively that that's a distraction from the cultivation of skills, knowledge, and competencies that they need to compete on the free market. Now, I've been a campus activist for a very long time, and what you often get from the vast majority of students is not just like a, I'm not interested, but almost like a, a paranoid fear of talking about these issues, or of talking about any issues that might interfere with their sort of consumption of an educational product. And that used to really bother me, and I used to get really angry with people for that attitude. But I've been thinking more and more recently that it sort of makes a perverse sort of sense. Because once you start thinking too deeply about these issues, it becomes very, very difficult to continue with that sort of competitive, accumulative mindset. Difficult, I should say, but the system also has a million ways of re-inscripting people, very critical people, back into its idiom of com individualist competitiveness. So I've seen a lot of very excellent people who've thought very critically about these issues also get re-interpolated into the system over the years, just because it, it wears you down, and it wears you down with poverty, it wears you down with being uh, alone, it wears you down with being sort of a lone voice. So I think if the universities have a function, it's to bring people together, to reassure them that, yes, they're not crazy, the system is fundamentally broken, and allowing us to think about and work together to build new ways out of it, new ways of building an alternative society from the ground up, from sort of within the crumbling ruins of our own society. We'd had another question about how Pokemon can help us understand financialization. Oh, yeah. 
Well, when I was doing my research on finance, I was looking increasingly at the way that financialized ideas and understandings make their way into everyday life. And there's lots of amazing examples of that. You know, you can think about just what happened with the growth of credit cards over the last 30 years. Or you can think about the way that financial literacy has become a main part of most school curriculums. But I wanted to look even beyond that to the way that it sort of creeps into popular culture. So I started doing some research on Pokemon cards. And when you actually watch what children do with Pokemon cards, they're very, very savvy. They're not always using the cards for the purposes for which they're intended. I mean, on the one hand, it's like a super commodified toy. It's like the slogan of the brand is literally gotta catch them all. You have to like get them all, get more and more and more, and they're always putting out more Pokemon. So it's sort of a brilliant attempt by Nintendo to create this sort of perfect consumerist object. But on the other hand, the way that kids use it is they don't actually often play the game. They only play the game some of the time. And they don't always value the cards based on the way that Nintendo thinks that they should value the cards. So there's actually like a schedule of rarity in the cards. Some cards are worth more than others because they're more rare than others. But often kids don't know that relative rarity. Or often they'll make up their own schemas of value. So the thing that I learned or was trying to figure out from this Pokemon example is that we live in a society where increasingly we're asked to translate all the values that we care about into economic value. So we might care about the value of education, but if we care about it, then we should go out and buy it. We might care about the value of art. If we care about it, we should go out and buy it. We might care about our family. If we care about our family, then we should work really hard so we have enough time off to spend with them or so we can take them to Disneyland or whatever. There's a work that our society conscripts us into doing of translating values into an overarching financial logic. And what I saw in Pokemon cards is a great example of where kids learn to do that, where they learn to translate their own communities and their own forms of play and their own values, the things that they want, like friendship, like a certain level of competitiveness. They learn to translate that into a sort of proto-economic language. It's a place where children, as I put it in the article, learn to learn to exist and to thrive in a financialized society. And that's sort of what I found so interesting about it. It's a bit of a tangential or distanced argument, but I think it makes some level of sense. And then it explains, well, why is Pokemon popular now? Why didn't this toy emerge 30 years ago or 50 years ago? And my argument is that children who are brought up in a financialized culture find this sort of tool or toy appealing because it does something for them. It helps them understand their world in a way that, you know, usually we just think of children as completely innocent, but that's a very incorrect assumption. Nintendo was extremely crafty in designing the whole Pokemon empire, from the television show to the video games to the cards, and they looked at baseball and hockey card collecting, and they said, okay, what can we take from this that works, and how can we improve upon it to appeal to kids today? And that was done through sort of the intermarket integration of different media, and it was done through the making it into a card game that you could play. So there's all sorts of ways that they sort of tried to engineer a better product, which relies fundamentally on children's work, on the work that children do to make it appealing to them and make it useful within their own communities. We were in Montreal over last summer at the degrowth conference that was being held at numerous universities in the city. And we got to take part and learn about the student movement there. And they were protesting against tuition increases. But then when you go and talk to people in the U.S. about it, either they didn't really hear about it at all 
or the perception was, well, these are just whiny crybabies who have a minor tuition increase. Look at how much we pay for tuition. And it's way more than that. Then they were talking about free education, which is so opposed to anything that's going on in the U.S. and so opposed to most mindsets in the U.S. What do you think we've learned from the Montreal student movement? And can we expect to see some of these uprisings at universities or in cities around the world? Yeah, it's funny that multiple generations of Quebec students have been fighting against tuition, the imposition of tuition fees, and then the hiking of tuition fees for a very long time. And it's been a really phenomenal struggle. And this last bout of struggle in 2012 was only sort of the latest step, uh, a very dramatic step, but the latest step in that multi-generational struggle. I think what we can learn from it is a couple of things. The first is that that strike was built out of very serious grassroots organizing. It wasn't built out of student unions or established student organizations as much, although those organizations ended up playing an important role. It was people going to their colleagues and to fellow students and saying, look, here's the problem, we need to fight it, and really working one-on-one -on -one with students to build their consciousness of the problem and to build enough solidarity that they could sort of department by department vote to go on strike. So I think one of the first lessons is that real change and real social movements take time and energy and a lot of grunt work. It's not just about slogans and heading out to the streets, which is great. I love both those things. But it was a lot of work for the organizers involved. The other thing I think which is really interesting about that struggle, and the reason that they won, I think, is that they based their protest on principles rather than pragmatics. They started and ended with a very strong insistence that they were against the commercialization and commodification of education and that the ultimate horizon of their struggle was free education. Not everyone in the struggle agreed with those principles, but a large number of people did. And I think what's happened, especially in student movements, but in social movements throughout North America recently, is that people have been tempted to give up on the principles of the struggle and just focus on what they think they can win or focus on making a sort of palatable message for the general public. And I think what they did in Quebec is say, no, you know, we fundamentally believe university education should be free. And because we believe that, we are going to go on strike and we're not going to back down. Even though the Quebec government passed an incredibly regressive law, which basically forbade street demonstrations. And in fact, because I think they stood on principle when that law came down in May of last year, they were joined in the streets by trade unions, by everyday people banging pots and pans in the casserole demonstrations. Because I think what the public saw in that was not just a special interest group demanding their fair share. They saw young people fundamentally refusing a model of society that, again, almost everyone realizes is broken. So when they, when, I think when they stood on principle, they in some way embodied the aspirations of a much larger group of people. Those are the two lessons that I really learned from the Montreal student strike. And it's a shame that it hasn't caught on as much in the United States and also in the rest of Canada. I mean, the rest of Canada, people knew about it, but there certainly wasn't a huge amount of sympathy for it for various historical reasons. So it would be great if people would look at that example. Yeah. 
Right. And and I was saying, you know, there's so much opposition to it in the US. But actually, I failed to mention that even in British Columbia, I met so many people who had the very same reaction to it, even people back in the US that I spoke with about it had. And, you know, they were mm. just saying, like, why, why are all of these students rising up over such a small increase, they should just accept it and free education's crazy. Yeah. And I was in Europe over in, in 2006. And I was really exposed to a whole different kind of educational system. When I was there, I was in, in Copenhagen. Where, where universities are very, very cheap, if not funded totally by the state. What, what do you say to somebody who has possibly, you know, not experienced a free education system? And how do you tell them that this might be a model that we need to work towards and fight for? It depends who they were, but I would say, why isn't it possible? What is it that prevents it from happening? In the United States, even a tiny fraction of the massive bailout the government gave to the financial companies in the last round would easily pay for free education for every single American and wipe out all student debt. It's ludicrous to say in some ways that it's not possible. And then the question is, well, what do we get? What do we gain? Or what do we think we gain by thinking it's impossible? And I think saying that it's impossible is the important thing for people, because if you say it's impossible, then yeah, you never have to think about that. You never have to ask the deeper questions about why certain things are free and certain things are not free, and why we have to pay for education when, in fact, it's been made free in many places in the world. And in fact, there have been universities in the United States where tuition has been free within living memory. I mean, Cooper Union in New York is still free or is about to not become free the City University of New York system used to be free. So there's lots of living, breathing examples. It's a matter of like our priorities as a society. And I think the deeper question that we can ask ourselves is, well, what do we actually want for young people in our society? What do we want for the coming generations? Do we believe it's right to saddle them with what amounts to collectively trillions of dollars worth of debt in order to get an education? Or do we think that that's something that we should take responsibility for more broadly? So much of what we've been talking about today is really just the way is that this process of financialization in society has really dictated what we can imagine and what is possible. And how would you start getting people to think differently about the future? Do you think that there is some kind of catalyst for the imagination that people can start jumping onto in order to imagine different ways of living and different ways for and operate? Me and a colleague have been over the last couple of years studying this exact question. And what we've come to the conclusion of is that the radical imagination, the ability to imagine the world differently, really does come from experience. It comes from the experience of being part of communities or being part of struggles that value different things than sort of the mainstream commercialized society. So if we live in a mainstream capitalist society that values accumulation, that values money, that values economic value over everything else, the way to think outside of that is to be exposed to or uh, involved in other modes of valuing. So this isn't actually all that alien. I mean, sometimes people join eco-villages or they join social movements or they join community groups that are based on other values, values of solidarity, values of environmental justice, values of what have you. But also, I mean, if most people live in families and families don't tend to value one another on the basis of economic worth. So there's a way that we can look to our own experiences of what we value as human beings as cues to what's so very wrong with the system we're in. And we become very adept at inuring ourselves to that irony, 
to the irony that we live in a system that does not match or fit our values. Very few people out there value competition and the accumulation of wealth as the most important things in their life. In fact, the moral of most Hollywood films is that you shouldn't do that, that you know, money isn't everything. So I guess the answer is that it's about being involved in different types of community. I think that's where the radical imagination comes from. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone needs to go out and join their local chapter of X and Y social movement. It does mean, though, that the radical imagination and the ability to envision a different sort of future comes from a sort of practice, comes from doing different things, comes from experimenting, rather than just thinking differently. Apple's extremely talented at looking at the most basic aspects of your life and redesigning it. That's why as the chief design officer at Apple, I've been extremely committed over the last year to launching our new product. We've completely redesigned university education. We call it the iDegree. We've taken degree learning to the next level with the iDegree. Not only can you go online and buy your iDegree for $1,900, but you can take this degree with you anywhere. It fits in the palm of your hand. Using the power of the Apple App Store, you can buy classes for only 99 cents. That's right. You don't actually have to learn anything from these classes, but they can be bought just for you. And added directly to your resume using the power of Apple's amazing design interface. Because Apple strives to take design to the next level, your diploma will look fantastic. It will be sleek and shiny and beautiful, but you won't know anything. For your long bouts of unemployment after your eye degree, we've launched the eye couch. This is the sleekest couch you will ever find. Using Apple's commitment to slick engineering design, the eye couch will rest your haunches in the finest, highest quality leather you could find. Now you can put your ass back, just like Steve is doing now in the ground. God bless you, Steve. But you might say, how will you finance your lifestyle? That's why Apple is launching a new financial product, the iDerivative. Don't worry about trading tangible goods. The iDerivative takes money earning to the whole new level. Don't worry about what's inside. It probably didn't have anything to do with slave labor. The exterior is beautiful. The interior is terrible, but who cares? When you buy Apple, you buy peace of mind. And so that wraps up our conversation with Max Haven about the financialization of higher ed. And he's actually working on a book on that topic to be published in 2014 called Cultures of Financialization, Fictitious Capital in Popular Culture and Everyday Life. We're going to cover a few of our thoughts on what we discussed with Max at the end of the show. But up next is Keo Stark, who just released her book, Don't Go Back to School. So we're going to jump right into our conversation with Keo, and we'll catch you again at the end of the show.
why would someone want to go back to school? I have a lot of friends right now who maybe are in jobs that they don't necessarily like and they're thinking, you know, what if I go back to school? What if I start a graduate program or go and get a different undergraduate degree to help me change careers? Mm -hmm. Why is it that they would want to go back to school to do that? I think you said some of the reasons, you know, the career change or career advancement is a big reason that people look to school, the kind of general desire to learn. Some people are headed for particularly graduate school as kind of a refuge from the bad economy. People have family pressure. People sometimes want to spend some time learning and exploring and being a student legitimizes that with their family or with their peers. The other main thing to my mind about people who think that they want to go back to school for career reasons or for learning reasons is that they just don't know that there are good ways to do it outside of school. So that's part of what the book is about, is making that more open to everyone. So what makes us think that school is the only legitimate infrastructure for learning? Culturally, it's the only infrastructure that we've put energy into making and supporting. So we all have a kind of perception because that's where most of the resources go. This is really starting to change, but university credentials are still the main source of kind of accepted credentials. The other thing, as I said, is people aren't really aware that there are other ways to go about it. Those ways are, tend to be informal and ad hoc and kind of self-invented. School does provide infrastructure and that infrastructure is something you have to make for yourself if you're learning independently. The thing is, school doesn't always provide that infrastructure very well. A lot of people leave school very disillusioned and unhappy, and part of that is because they've been looking for school to give them something. It didn't give it to them very well. You were mentioning that some people are leaving school feeling disenchanted. Did you talk to anyone in writing your book who felt that way and then was able to turn that around into a different approach to learning? Almost everyone. You know, there's a sample bias in, in who I talk to because I talk to people who are really excited about learning outside of school, you know, and who've been successful with it. But everyone I talk to, I would say half the people I talk to dropped out of either high school, college, or graduate school. Even the people who liked school, there are a couple things that school gave them, but mostly they just like to learn and they figured out how to do it on their own and they keep doing it. So let's uh, back up for a minute. Let's talk about a little bit about your educational journey. Mm -hmm. Did you go back to school at some point and decide that, hey, this is not for me? I went to hippie elementary school that was very open-ended, and, and we had a lot of autonomy to figure out what we wanted to learn. We just had work time during the day, and it was really wonderful. And then it only went up to eighth grade. So then I went to public high school, to a perfectly good public high school but I was miserable. I had to do things in the right order. If I got really interested in something, I still had to stop when the bell rang. When I got to college, it was very exciting. I had more autonomy than I had in high school. I really liked it. I did well in college. I really enjoyed it. I did think about dropping out my sophomore year. I, at that point, was a little disillusioned with school, even though I was going to a pretty good one, and wanted to go be a dancer again, which I had done in high school. Uh, and then I decided to stay. So I went to graduate school straight out of college, which is really never a good idea because um, I had no idea how the real world worked or what it was like. But I thought I wasn't done learning. So what I learned in my classes was kind of how to take apart a book, which is a great skill to have. It's a pretty neat trick, but I could have learned that in one class in one semester. I left after two years of coursework and I went and worked at The Nation magazine, which felt like more like the real world. I actually went back to Yale, 
because I had narrative nonfiction project that I wanted to work on, and then I left again. What is it that most people go to graduate school for? What, what did you find in talking to your peers when you were going to graduate school that they had in terms of their expectations and were their expectations being met? I'm sure there's people who are always finding different pieces of that story, um, but I'm just wondering what your experience was like. I mean, I think there were two kinds of students. There were the younger ones who went to graduate school either right out of college or a year out of college. And I was part of that group. And we were there to explore and learn more. And we thought this is a little bit more autonomous college. There were older students who went to work for a few years and then went to graduate school. And they understood the open secret, which is that liberal arts graduate school is professional school to be a professor. Nobody told us that, the younger ones, and we had to kind of figure it out on our own. And a lot of us weren't particularly sure we wanted to be professors. So that was where the point came where you had to think about, do I really want to stay here? So anyone that's going to school now that doesn't want to be a professor and they're in graduate school currently, they're in the wrong thing. Well, it really depends on what they're in. But if the job at the end of the road is being a professor, then yeah. If you're in certain fields and you want to work in museums, you might end up wanting to get a master's. PhDs definitely are towards academic work. I'm not saying going to graduate school isn't legitimate. I'm saying it's not the only option. So it's expensive. It's a, There's a kind of lost opportunity cost in your life in terms of being in the real world having a wider universe socially and uh, intellectually. But graduate school can be great, especially if it's free. Go for it. But with the sciences, it's much more likely that you're going to have an easier time getting to where you want to be at the end of it if you go to traditional school. But I did talk to several scientists, who, uh, one of whom dropped out of high school and and never went back to school at all, and uh, another who I think dropped out of college. And there are ways to learn skills, particularly now there are uh, citizen science labs where you can get access to actual lab equipment and people who know how to teach you how to use it. I just talked to a guy yesterday who went to Duke Law School, and he said the only way that he could have gotten that high-powered paying job was because he had the networking connections that Duke offers. How do people get into those networking channels if they're not part of a large institution? Well, first of all, being a lawyer, he couldn't have had that job without the law degree. Also, there are a category of jobs called protected title professions, which are healthcare professions, law, architecture, uh, certain kinds of engineering. You have to have a degree to take the license exam, and you have to have a license to practice. The issue of sort of old boy networks is a separate And it's true that sometimes that is the reason to go to graduate school. People who get MBAs do that a lot. They're basically paying for access to people. And the thing that I found out from interviewing all these people is that you can find your way into networks that can help you, and in some cases, into those same networks. You have to find a different way. You have to be scrappy. You have to be charismatic about it. But it's not totally closed off to you. And I talked to maybe 10 entrepreneurs and finance people who didn't get MBAs and, and didn't major in business uh, in college, and they're doing great. So it's definitely an option. I was wondering if you found specific examples where it really is useful to go back to school, where people went to school and actually found it 
useful um, as opposed to maybe a lot of the other examples that you found. What's interesting about that is, you know, I asked people who did like school what they liked about it. And the first answer that everyone gave was the other students. Not teachers, not resources, not classes, just having access to other learners, which I think is really tremendous. And so that's one of the reasons to go to school, because you have a kind of ready-made access to a learning community. And it's not social like parties. It's social like getting to have other people to learn with and compete with and challenge you and talk to in the hallways. I mean, another really significant thing is that, again, most of the people who did go to college, when I asked them what was good about it and they started to talk about their peers, they also said that the best learning experiences they had were extracurricular. It was when a bunch of their friends got together and started a zine or a magazine or a, a band, you know, or put up an art show or anything that they were doing together on their own steam, on their own time. Um, and one of the things that I suggest to people who aren't in school is go hang out with people who are and tap into that energy and uh, get involved in the projects that they're putting together. So do you think there's a way to find that kind of social learning environment in a way that doesn't involve the expense and kind of just, you know, hoop jumping that a lot of the academic world is? Absolutely. And almost everyone who I talked to in the book had a great story about how they did this. One of the people that I interviewed, I'm just editing the interview with her now, is a woman named Molly Danielson, who got obsessed with composting toilets and wanted to change the landscape of how we deal with waste material. She didn't know anything about it. She started researching it. She got to a point where she had all these questions she couldn't answer. And she started going around town figuring out who are all the people who are interested in anything related to this and invited them all to a party and started a kind of monthly meetup of all of these people who had common issues. And that's been the core of her learning is that group that she started. So is that kind of like a meetup group that, that she got involved with? Is um, it a common interest? It's, it's less formal than a meetup group in that she drummed everybody up herself. And it's more, um, meetup group tends to be a kind of, you know, socializing around common interest. And this is really people who are, who are working on this and studying the science of it. And, you know, she met chemists and biologists and, and also hippies who are trying to not have an impact on the environment. So it's a big range of people. Talking to all of these people that you've, you've been interviewing for your book, I'm sure that everyone has a different story of how they learned to teach themselves or gain the confidence to know that they could teach themselves. Did you find that there's like one spark, one moment when people suddenly figure out that they can learn for themselves? And maybe if there is, you could relay a few of the stories from your, uh, from your interviews. Not very many people talked to me about having a kind of epiphany moment. Most of them either talked about engaging with the things that made them drop out of school or that made them bored with school and trying to learn something and find a way to do it that wasn't like school. For a lot of people, it's just that they get really obsessed with something or passionate about something and they want to learn everything they need to know to understand it. And so they're very driven to do that. And when you're in that mode, it's not about confidence or being scared. You're just looking for something that you need or that you want. 
And that, that's a big boost for anybody's motivation and courage. It's a very empowering experience when you figure out that you can learn things without actually having to go to school. In my last job, uh, there was an opportunity for me to do a lot of web development, and I really had no uh, background in that. Mm-hmm. And I was able to just sit by working at it and just being at my job, I was able to learn the skills I needed to actually build a website that, that helped my company out. Yeah. I mean, I, there's two other good stories about this. One is a programmer named Josh Sager who taught himself programming, and he was so excited that he was able to teach himself programming, he thought, I could teach myself anything. And he really wanted to learn silk screening, so he started teaching himself silk screening. And he failed so miserably the first time that he didn't try it again for another year. But now he's, you know, very expert and he does it all the time, and it's, you know, one of his favorite side projects. Another story, this is the kind of story a lot of people told, which is the fake it till you make it story. A woman named Quinn Norton, who's a science journalist, talked to me about dropping out of school. She dropped out of school so many times I can't keep track, but I think this is when she dropped out of high school. She started a a furniture restoration business and her mother was teaching her a lot about it. And she said the most incredibly useful thing her mother taught her was When somebody's asking you for something and you don't really know how to do it or you don't know what they're talking about, she said, memorize what they're asking for, lean back, cross your arms and say, I can do that. And then as soon as they leave, go figure out how to do it. (laughs) That's very much how this show got started. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Oh, yeah. We had never done any podcasting really before and we were like, hey, let's start a show. And we started interviewing guests and kind of just faked it and here we are today. <laughs> yeah, that, it's kind of the slogan of independent learning, fake it till you make it. Do you think that there's a, a barrier to this self-learning that people are scared or they're, they're not self-confident enough to actually begin this process? What is, what is the barrier like? Yeah, I think the barrier is that it's scary and daunting and that's at least some of that is because you don't know how to do it or you don't have a model of somebody who's doing it. You don't even know where to start. Um, That's part of the mission of this book, is to give anybody who is thinking about it a real roadmap for how to start, how to navigate the kinds of questions that you might come up against and, and some of the barriers you might hit along the way. The biggest issue is not having any familiarity with how people are doing this. So do you think you might walk us through a couple of uh, the steps of this process or the whole process? Is it a long one? Everybody has a really different process. So we would be here all night if I was trying to walk you through all the different processes. But um, (laughs) I mean, the first question you have to sort out is, what do I want to learn? And why do I want to learn it? If you don't have a good reason for wanting to learn it, you probably won't get very far. Then you need to figure out where to start. You need to find people to learn with. You need to find materials and resources that will help you. There's a lot of styles, but there were two basic patterns that I saw. The first one is pretty linear. It's the the way that uh, a course in college would work. You could borrow a syllabus and kind of read through it and accomplish this or work through a textbook. So it's you start at the beginning, you learn each thing that lets you understand the next thing. And that's a great way to do it. For some fields, it's more useful than others. I think it's the way that somebody who's coming from school-based learning is going to be most comfortable with. The other pattern that I saw a lot of is I jump in right at the place where I'm really fascinated 
and I go 100 miles an hour in a direction that turns out to be the wrong direction, and then I go back, and then I figure this out, and then I need to know some physics, and I just start with the physics I need to know and back up until I get to the point where I understand the physics I need to know. And everyone who talks about that kind of process says it's kind of chaotic and it takes longer, but I end up understanding what I'm trying to learn in a much broader context, and I'm able to make really interesting connections in a way that I wouldn't be if I was going through the linear path. So before there was real formal education, people have still been doing the complicated tasks for many, many years. I mean, blacksmiths and millers and all sorts of people have been working. Um, what was what was it like when people were doing apprenticeships? Was there how did how did formal learning kind of change the way that these classical forms of learning were or were? And how did is that is that apprenticeship model still around somewhere? That's a great question. I mean, one of the important things about historical apprenticeship is that it's not like an like an unpaid internship. You went and lived with the person you were apprenticing from, and they fed you and in return for the work that you were doing in their shop and you were learning. So it was a very symbiotic relationship. Apprenticeships are starting to come back as a way of learning. Siemens has a really interesting program right now where they are paying kids to come, instead of going to college, to come and work at Siemens for four years to be mentored and trained and apprentice. And they get a, certif- a certificate at the end and a promised job. And, you know, the job is there for them. And companies are finding that that's as useful as having to weed through people who have college degrees but no work experience. Some people might say that it's the structure of the classroom environment. It's those assignments that help us learn. It's it's that structure that makes it happen. It, and if there is no structure, if you're self-motivated in learning, how does that motivation maintain itself? Do people really just latch on to something and stick with it for a long time? Or do they find that their motivation runs out eventually? The first thing I would say about that is that the structure of the classroom environment may help you get things done on time, but it doesn't help you learn. And I think that's really important. The people I talk to in terms of their motivation running out or, you know, changing their path, either they never felt done with what they were learning because it's fascinating and there's always more to turn over, or they get to a point where they feel like they've learned what they need and they move on to something else. But I didn't hear a lot of stories of people saying like, yeah, I was learning all this math, and then I just kind of got distracted. It feels a lot like institutions such as universities and you know big places of learning have have become almost superfluous in a lot of ways. You can go online and learn pretty much anything, any skill that you want. What do you see the, the future of online learning? And then maybe a step further, what do you see the future of large institutions such as universities looking like? Those are kind of entwined. What's going to happen with big institutions of learning is still really very up for grabs, and I'm not in the business of prediction. Things are going to change. That's the one thing I can tell you. I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon, and we currently still need a lot of the resources that they generate. So we need the research that happens there. There are multi-million dollar facilities for research that at the moment only exist in universities. Uh, or in some private research labs. There is the incredible amount of scholarship and research that's generated and published. My feeling is that if institutions don't open that stuff up, they they are going to die. 
the economics of this is also very up for, up for grabs, and economics is not my specialty. I'm really curious to see what kinds of different funding models universities are going to turn to now that uh, tuitions are going up, people can't afford it, the debt burden is going up, the land-grant university system is in trouble because uh, states don't have money to put into them anymore. This is all stuff you know about. That means everything's going to change to some degree. In terms of online learning, it still largely depends on the resources we get from universities. So courseware, syllabi, scholarly articles. The great story is about scholarly articles becoming more open. There are currently, I think it's now 13,000 research scholars on strike, basically. They haven't called it a strike, but they've signed a petition saying that they're not doing any more work or publishing in scholarly journals run by the three big publishers until they open up. The only way that you can make your own research public if it's published in one of these journals is to pay about $3,000 to the journal. This is writing you haven't gotten paid for, peer review work you haven't gotten paid for, and you don't have a decision about whether or not to make it open to the public. And so a really significant portion of scholars are saying, we're not going to do that anymore. And so what's the alternative for them? Because there are more and more open access journals that are coming along, but so much of the tenure track system is tied to your ability to get into those closed journals. So how are you seeing this evolution play out in academics that you've been speaking to? I think and hope that the way that tenure works is going to change a lot. Um, One thing that I think would be great is if open access journals started to have more weight in terms of publications that count towards tenure review. Another thing that I would love to see, and this is a total pipe dream, is, you know, professors have office hours where any student can come and see them. I would love to see a system where any scholar or expert from anywhere could hold public office hours online and welcome people to come and ask them questions, and that that would count towards their tenure uh, in the same way that their teaching counts, which their teaching doesn't count a lot, but at least it would be something. You know, what if every scholar at every university gave an hour a month to let people ask them questions? You know, what would the world look like? It's interesting that you mentioned that because in many ways that's the model we've used for our show. We take these professors at universities and in my own graduate school experience, I was just going to all these classes and having some really great professors and saying, wow, you know, why is it that I get to be here and the rest of the world doesn't get to be here? And so it's really cool to see that evolving and and more uh, thought going into that process. But another side of of this is also students who are finding themselves no longer willing uh, to take on the financial burden of the university. Maybe they're coming out of high school and looking at educational resources for themselves and saying, you know, maybe going to these big institutions is not for me. What advice would you have for them about starting to learn? I would say that if you're deciding at the end of high school that you want to try an alternative to college because it's too expensive, that the first thing you need to figure out is what do you actually want from learning. So you may want what's called a traditional liberal arts well-rounded education. In that case, I'd get a lot of syllabi together and find some other people who want to do that and start reading and discussing. You may want some more career-specific skills. Again, I would get online, learn how to find the people who are offering tutorials in those skills, find other people who want to learn them, find access to shared facilities, hacker spaces. 
There's so many amazing shared equipment groups. There's even a cake pan lending library in many, many towns. So you have to do some work in order to find the things you need. And the beginning of that process is, what do I want to learn? Did you see a cake pan lending library? I did. What, what is that? That's where people have specialized baking equipment that you don't use very often. And there's a list of people who are willing to lend their bunt cake pans or their madeleine pans or their specialized cookie cutters to other people who want to use them so that you don't have to buy all the equipment again. I wanted to ask you about what you see as the, as future technologies and, tel- and telecommunications continue to advance. Where do you see that, that going and how do you see that affecting education? The most interesting stuff that's going on right now with technology and education is all the experiments in online learning. And some of them are coming from big institutions, some of them are coming from startups. There's Coursera where you can uh, take classes online uh, with reputable professors and get a certificate at the end. And there's weekly work and assignments and you turn stuff in and there are lectures. There's much more informal stuff. And the thing that none of these systems are doing yet is connecting learners with each other and facilitating their collaborative work. So that's the big challenge that I am issuing to all the people who are trying to do online learning and technologically assisted learning is get that part solved. Another angle to the question earlier about students who are getting out of high school and don't want to go to a university is on the other side, people who are at a full-time job maybe and they feel that they aren't engaged and they want to go back and start learning something. Do you have any insights that you've gathered from the interviews that you've done on how to approach that issue? People who want to start learning about something but haven't been to school in a really long time. People who are in a job that they're disillusioned with or bored with and want to change their career tend to need to learn skills more than, you know, to like read Plato. The best way to learn skills is in a concrete context, usually starting with the project. So rather than just saying, I want to learn silk screening 101 in an abstract way, you say, I want to make a t-shirt that has a robot on it. And you do that. And that's the, then you have to learn all the pieces of making a t-shirt with a robot on it. You have to learn how to draw the robot. You have to learn how to make the silk screen. You have to learn how to do the printing, how to choose the ink, you know, what kind of cloth. The best way to do that is a combination of watching tutorials online and finding a community of people who are doing that who can help you. And silk so screening is a sort of frivolous example, but it could be graphic design or it could be uh, learning how to make furniture or it could be programming. I wouldn't say there's a right way and a wrong way. I would say that depending on what you want to learn, there, from my research, I've seen that there are more prevalent approaches for different types of learning. So skills-based learning, people have a better time learning it in a context, and starting with a project is a really good way to do it. But there's no wrong way. I mean, you know, I said earlier that the first thing you have to do is figure out what you want to learn, and really the second thing you have to figure out is how do you prefer to learn? What, what are your best approaches to learning? Some people take notes, some people don't. Some people draw pictures to remember things. Other people just rely on 
well, if it's important, I'll remember it. You know, those are strategies for internalizing knowledge. Uh, some people told me that the best way for them to internalize knowledge is to try things and make mistakes, and then they understand why the right way works, as opposed to just memorizing what the right way is. So there's a lot of variation here, and the real task is to try some things and figure out what works for you. One example is a woman named uh, Katerina Rindy, who's in San Francisco, who wanted to start a business, didn't get into business school, and she joined a reading group called the Faux MBA Reading Group. Uh, and they made a curriculum for themselves, and they met, uh, I think it's every three weeks, and they read things, and they talk about them, and they take apart the businesses that they're working on, and see how they do running them through different theories. And they're getting everything that they needed that they would have gotten in business school. They're not getting everything from business school, but a lot of people talk about how unnecessary they think most of the business school education is for entrepreneurship. Are those meetup groups one strategy for getting into those networks that we were talking about earlier? And uh, are there other strategies for getting and penetrating those kind of tough, uh, tough to build networks that a lot, drive a lot of people to go to school? One of the entrepreneurs who I talked to was uh, Jeremy Cohen, who started Exchange My Phone, which is a successful business recycling and reselling old phones. He was in Chicago. He worked for eight years selling beer at the stadium. He wanted to start a business. He didn't really know how to connect to those networks in Chicago. He moved to New York and got involved in the Skillshare community and got involved in not meetups, but some various tech community kind of gatherings. And he got on a lot of mailing lists for entrepreneurs. And that was his education. Those were the people that he connected with. And those are some significant people in the New York startup community. So he found his way into those places on his own. Is there a specific uh, sweet spot age that people most benefit from self-learning? I mean, can you start in high school? Does it people that are post-college? I talk to people from age 18 to age 80. You know, for people who are younger, for K through 12 education, there's homeschooling and unschooling, and there's a lot of success stories there. It's also complicated by the fact that you have not just learning issues, but developmental psychological issues. So and that's not a population that I interviewed, but the book project is very popular in the homeschooling community. So, And one of the things that's happening in the homeschooling community is more and more resources for getting homeschoolers together, letting them have, like, here's a science class you guys can all come to if you don't have the lab equipment at home. Uh, UNC actually has a great one of those centers. Now, I've heard this term unschooling before. I know what homeschooling is. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure what unschooling is. Could you talk about it a little bit? Sure. Um, I think these are all ideological terms that have different meanings to different people, but the, the basic division is that homeschooling still has a kind of structure and you have somebody saying, like, here's the stuff we need to learn. Let's figure out a cool way to go about it. So, you know, you guys, you kids are really interested in China. Let's learn the history of China. You know, let's learn Chinese music. Let's learn everything we can. Unschooling is a little bit more like, hey, go for it. Learn whatever you want. And that's a sort of caricature, but it's much more free-floating and without direction from adults. It's trusting kids that they can figure out how to learn, that they know 
how to come ask questions when they need help, and that by following their natural curiosities, they are going to encounter all the things that they need to encounter. In in your interviews, you, you spoke with Cory Doctorow, and he talked about the power of groups to help him learn and refine his writing process. And so how is it that most people start or find those groups? We've mentioned a few groups throughout, throughout our conversation, but do people just get together with a few friends and say, hey, let's just start a writing circle? Or uh, is there another method? That's one way. Um, you know, you some people asked around until they found a friend of a friend of a friend who was interested in the same thing. Another way that people do this is they go to uh, events or conferences that are related to the thing they want to learn. So there's a woman named Simone Davalos, who is a combat robotics referee by trade, and she's involved in running combat robotics competitions. I asked her how she got started, and she said, well, robotics people are uh, pretty open, so it was more about finding them. She said she went to a meeting of something called DorkBot, which exists in many, many cities around the country. It's a meeting of people who are doing weird things with technology, and they present their work and then have discussions about it and talk to people who want to learn more about it. And I think I talked to at least eight people out of the 80 interviews who said that DorkBot changed their life and gave them access to the stuff that they wanted to learn. Simone also talked about going to conferences of roboticists and basically asking people a lot of questions uh, and letting them know that they were being helpful to her. I think one of the most interesting things for being a self-learner is just reading and hearing about the stories of other self-learners because it lends that motivation. And I'm wondering if there's any stories, uh, you know, one or several that stand out that uh, you've come across in doing the interviews that you wanted to share. I mean, there are two kinds of stories. You know, one is the kind of story where somebody wants to succeed at something and finds their own way to do it. And another is the kind of story where somebody is obsessed with something and spends a lot of time and becomes the person who knows everything about it. Um, so one of my favorite stories is actually a friend of mine whose name is David Hermes, who got obsessed with macro photography of ice. And he spent about six months of evenings coming home from work and having frozen all sorts of shapes during the day and then taking them out and setting up a totally rigged, cheap digital camera and a jeweler's loop because he couldn't afford a really serious macro lens and trying all these experiments. And he ended up having an art show and it was in the New York Times and he sold a lot of work. He's not technically an artist. He's a programmer. I hear from so many people that they just don't feel like they're being able to apply themselves at their job. Like maybe they're only giving 10% uh, or 20% of, of what they really could because their job doesn't engage them. Do you think that the way forward for them is really to to find that hobby. You mentioned earlier, you know, learning those skills are important for people who maybe haven't been in school before, but do you have any specific thoughts on how to get people to start thinking like they're applying themselves in something again? One of the things that I think is really interesting about programmers is that in general, they have a philosophy that it's really important to have side projects. And when you're hiring a programmer, uh, chances are you're going to ask them about their side projects. And so I think that the culture of side projects is uh, part of the answer. I wish that workplaces supported side projects. Some of the most 
uh, creative workplaces do. They'll give people half a day off a week or every other week to work, to be paid to work on something outside of their work because the companies understand that that pays them back in creativity and in, in happiness. Um, somebody who's doing a job that they really don't like and they're only putting 10% of themselves into it, another thing I heard from a lot of people that they had kind of easy, boring jobs that they could do in not as much time as was as they could do these jobs uh, in less time than they were allotted, and they started using that time to learn stuff. Um, people who worked the night shift, you know, and didn't have a lot of customers were using that time to learn programming or to read classics. So what do you think it is about these obsessions that people seem to have. You're talking about one guy that's doing macro photography, but it it's it seems like humans can so can get so obsessed about something, even if it's not it's just their hobby. Mm-hmm. What what do you think that is? Basically, we are programmed to learn. That's the most basic thing about humans is from the day we're born, we're learning. And I think that in the best case scenario, as we grow up, we retain that passion for learning, and that can express itself in the form of obsessions. In a good way, I don't mean obsessive disorder, I just mean a really passionate interest in something and the drive to learn about it. But it seems to me that so many people through either their childhood where they go to mandatory schooling and they just get they have to force feed that learning into them, just memorization of large amount of things that they just don't want to learn. They just stop wanting to learn. They buy into this kind of consumeristic model where they just they get all their enjoyment out of life by buying things. And, you know, they spent that whole childhood being being force fed knowledge. So people have forgotten about this self learning. How do we begin this trend again to restart this passion in people and to help them to understand that learning is really, really what life's all about? That's the hardest question, I think, uh, and it's a really good one. It is absolutely true that in the worst cases that school simply beats the curiosity out of students. And that's one of the reasons that our school system is a mess. Um, It's one of the reasons that I'm advocating other ways of learning. When somebody has really had the curiosity beaten out of them, I think the best approach is even when people have had the curiosity beaten out of them and they're they're buying things, chances are they have a hobby. And hobbies are about learning. The idea that we can make the analogy between having a hobby and learning at a at a different level I think is one potential strategy. But I think this is one of the biggest problems that we have. Poison is medicine, it's the truth, I hear voices Repent for every sin through the year's choices Life been a wider voyage, high mileage pointless If you ain't catch the scenery, smell the flowers Appreciate more than money, females, and power These three things above all else devour The average man thoughts and you got jealous cowards Awaiting your demise 
They hands hold venom, no soul in them Hate up in their eyes, friends is enemies in the making Waiting, they want the life you live in Dreams you chasing, spam you clicking Even if you still in the struggle Dudes envy that you willing to hustle They know you gonna make it, Lord willing Feel contempt in their heart and that closes out our conversation with Keo Stark on not going back to school. And I wanted to talk about both of the, the conversations we had with Keo and Max today because they were really covering the same issue from two different angles. And that's that our system of higher education, especially in the U.S., but really in Canada, across Europe as well, is reaching a point where it's no longer viable because that whole underlying foundation of our civilization is changing. And that's something we dive into a lot on our show. But Keo was saying that, you know, one of the reasons people go to graduate school is to pay for access to people and to gain access to those social networks. And not just in the professional world, but what people actually like the most about school is that they have access to a social learning environment. And the best learning experiences is really in getting groups of people together. And that's definitely the experience that I have and why I really enjoy uh, pursuing my PhD in an institution of higher education, because despite the problems, despite the ridiculousness of so many of the processes, I really do get to work with some fantastic people who help to uh, push me harder in the right directions and develop so many of the things that I'm really passionate about and like to work on. And so I feel like it's, uh, it's working really well for me. But as Keo was saying, you don't have to go back to school to gain those skills and to do something that you really love. So that's the beauty of this evolving system, Justin, is you don't need to be in the classroom to have access to these fantastic minds. Some, you know, many of these people have videos out or you can interact with them via their YouTube channels or uh, ask them a direct question via email. Somebody on the other side of the world can pull up a fantastic professor who they've, who they've been reading their whole life, find their email address and drop him an email, which, which never before have you been really able to do because the technology is just there. We are just now beginning to see the death throes of this these higher education reacting to this increased communication availability to the world. Though I think that's a, a big factor. I don't think that you know, following a professor on Twitter is a replacement for reading a book and developing ideas. However, oh yeah, of course not. Yeah. You know, so so even though it helps with access and it helps with contact and exposure, it's not going to have the same sort of transformative cognitive process as developing long form thoughts throughout classes or reading a book. I mean, I even find that even though, uh, you know, blogs and RSS feeds are really great for me to stay on top of information and to find, you know, latest data points from macro economies or whatever, it's not good for me to read and to really develop comprehensive ideas on topics. And I still find that despite years and years of finding and curating a really solid list of RSS feeds that I follow, I sit down and I read a book. And if I'm reading a really great book, it has a way bigger impact on me chapter by chapter than any blog or, or a series of RSS feeds. The long form format of a book lends itself really, really well to d large idea dissemination that you can't really get from a tweet or you know, even from a YouTube video so much. The TED Talks are pretty fantastic. And, you know, you can get some pretty large ideas going in your brain. And that drives you to those literature formats where you can really delve deep 
into some of the some of these ideas. So, like you're saying, you're not gonna you're not gonna make up for the fact that you're not in the classroom with a Twitter feed, but it definitely helps and it definitely stimulates those thought processes to begin and to really broaden the interests of people who have not really thought about some of the things that you know that goes on in higher education. Yeah, and I think that all of these communication tools open up the opportunity for people to really access education, as you were saying, in a new way if they're willing to take up that initiative. So it's finding people in your community who really want to learn a lot about a topic. Let's say you take some of our permaculture episodes and say, I really want to learn about aquaponics. And you find people in your community who know aquaponics. And, you know, maybe every other week, you know, every other Wednesday night, you start an aquaponics learning circle and you guys show off your, you know, newest aquaponics gear. And I know for me in learning uh, mycology, it really helped to have a community of people that had been there before and had been studying it over decades to be able to teach me, you know, mushroom species in my area. And to, you know, when I go on a foray in this, uh, in this area, you know, what are the mushrooms to eat, which are not the ones that you eat. And that's the real advantage of being in a university environment too, because you have people who have been through that process before and know how to interact with colleagues, how to, you know, write something that can be put together in publication. And so it's really extremely valuable experience that you get from those other people. But you don't have to put the time and cost and expense and uh, structure that our university requires into learning something that you're passionate about and want to do in the future. And I, that's why I liked what Keo brought up about, you know, potentially having professors that had online office hours in the future. Like imagine if any professor, you could just go online and find them on Skype during one hour or a Google Plus live broadcast and ask them any question. People would log in from all around the world. That's kind of the model for our show in many ways. Yeah, and that's absolutely right, Justin. And I think that a really interesting point to talk about here is the cost of higher education. I know that for many people, cost is a really large issue. And I know I, I work at a private university and the debt that people leave school with, if you're not financially well off, can really range up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you're not getting that job that's going to help you pay off that loan, it can be really, really painful to have that debt just hanging over your head. And where before people would be getting these high powered paying jobs, now they're getting jobs in retail, jobs in banks, things that are really not utilizing the skills that they went to school for in the first place. And they're just trapped under this huge debt that doesn't go away even when you declare bankruptcy. I mean, this, this is debt that's going to follow you for the rest of your life. And for many people, they often, if they're not using their skills, they're thinking, oh, well, you know, if I'm not using my skills now, maybe I should just go back to school and get another degree and rack up some more debt. Because when I get out of this degree, I know I'm going to have another job. But it seems to not work that way in many cases. And you end up just increasing your debt and increasing the suffering. It's a, it's a terrible situation that many of us are finding ourselves in, especially young people. And it's one that I don't think universities are really addressing as much as they should. Well, they're actually starting to address it in a way that they wouldn't like, which is more people are not going to university. And so I just saw this past week a story that was using U.S. Department of labor statistics and the college enrollment rate, um, the share of recent U.S. high school graduates enrolling in a college or university in the same year dropped in 2012 to 66.2%, the lowest since 2006. But if you actually go back in time and you look at uh, where that number was at, say back in 2007, it was actually close to 70% for both men and women. 70% uh, of the young adults who went through high school were going to college. And now that's approaching two thirds. So 
it's been a pretty big shift in just five to six years. And so you can imagine that that trend is not going to reverse. In fact, I would be willing to say that it's going to accelerate given the structure of the jobs that have been created since the 2008 financial crisis. And also that a lot of people are living through the experience of maybe their older sibling. Like maybe they had an older sibling who went back to school and got, you know, $100,000 in debt with a master's degree or something. And then they're like, you know, I don't want to go through that. And so I think that the social learning process that's going to occur there is going to be really rapid in that there's going to be a generation that just looks at their older brother or sister and sees how screwed over they got by the system and just wholeheartedly says, you know, I'm not going to do that. And so you're going to see that rate of students going from high school to college drop off like five or 10 percent maybe in a few years. And so, you know, we could be at a point by like 2015 or 2016 where it's closer to 50 percent or 40 percent of students who finish high school go to college. And I could totally see that happening. But what does that do to universities, their whole financial model? Yeah. Do you think that people are just going to stop wanting to go to higher education? Do you think that need and that want is just going to disappear? Yeah. Well, you know, we talk on our show a lot about that whole contract, unsaid contract, perhaps, where, you know, you go to school, you get the degree, you get a job. And we've talked about that a lot. And we, we know from the interviews that we've done and we've known from looking at data that that whole story is falling apart. And I think you really see it in these statistics. And, you know, we were talking with Max Haven earlier today about all of the problems with the financialization of education and thinking of ourselves in, as investors and how that really shuts down our ability to think of a different kind of economy because we're putting everything, our future, our lives in the context of that investment. And so it's creating this generation of paranoid and desperate people who are seeking these institutional certificates and are really frantic as an economic personality in trying to seek these things. And that's absolutely the opposite of the mindset that's going to build an adaptive and intelligent response to our future crises. And, you know, it's sad to see generation after generation of people who just get subjected to that, but on a more desperate level, because the competition for jobs is only getting more and more extreme. That's true, Justin. And it's sad to think that even the liberal arts degree that you know, it used to be a treasured thing that having that liberal arts degree guaranteed you a job in a, you know, some place that's giving you lots of money. But now it doesn't really do that anymore. That American dream of having that liberal arts degree has kind of gone by the wayside. And it's been replaced by what? Getting PhDs and master's degrees and in business and lawyer degree. I, I don't even know what you what the the baseline education that most people are 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 looking for for jobs these days are but it's 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 much higher that inflationary educational system has has really kicked in hard and has really pushed people to get to get those higher education degrees just to get their foot in the door yeah well so you mentioned law school right there but actually law school applications are declining sharply and are headed for a 30-year low in 2013 as uh back in 2004 law school applications were around a hundred thousand a year in the united states they decreased a little bit, but back in 2011, they were up around 90,000. But this year, there's going to be about 50,000 law school applications. So the people are not really wanting to be lawyers anymore, I see. Well, yeah, it's dropped in half. And oh. enrollment at law schools peaked in 2010 at about 50,000. And now it's down below 40,000. We're looking at about 39,000 enrolled. And those are some pretty rapid shifts. And I'm seeing more and more stories about how law schools are laying off faculty because they're really experiencing contraction. And I think that law school is going to be one of the leading indicators of the failure of higher education because it's so expensive. 
And because the costs are so high and there's such a limited role for, and there's so many limited positions for lawyers in society that you're going to see law schools contract first, but that's going to be the leading indicator for the rest of professions too. I want to make a quick point here. Both Justin and I have been through higher education. Justin, I wanted to ask you, we've been talking about a lot of the negative parts about higher education, all the bad things that it brings, but there are some positives as well. There have been some good parts in academics. I know for me, um, I'm wondering what has been some positives in your academic career? Yeah, and that's a really good point that you brought up the positives in academics because I've had a fantastic experience here at the University of British Columbia in taking classes that help to develop my understanding of ecological economics and play into the way that we develop these podcasts and, and everything that we do on the show. And also in my undergrad, I had an excellent undergrad experience um, in North Carolina, but a lot of it had to do with me not taking the whole uh, certification and class aspect of higher ed to seriously. I was always pushing for extracurricular activities. And it just like how we were talking about with Keo Stark a few minutes ago on how all those experience with the people you worked with in university really uh, making a difference. I've developed so many great projects and so many great things out of those relationships that it really was incredible. And I did learn a few things from a few really key classes that I can remember back to. I mean, I, I think <laughs> about, you know, my my indigenous religions class that I took when I was getting my engineering undergrad. And I was just like, man, that was awesome. Or my class on American values that I had. Um, and those things really did help to open my eyes and see the world in a really different way um, and had much more impact on my life than my engineering classes did, actually. So it's interesting how you can take some of those you know, side classes and then look back in four or five years and be like, yeah, those side classes actually <laughs> impacted me way more than my actual degree. And even, you know, I took some, some side classes in environmental economics and I use the stuff that I learned in that environmental economics class to critique environmental economics way more than I use, you know, my control uh, systems and circuit design class. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I know for me, the, the best part of college probably happened outside of the classroom. I was fortunate enough to be able to take some journalism classes and take some study abroad time and really get to explore the, the world and, and develop that love for travel. And we, I know we talk a lot about travel on this show, but it was because of college and it was because of the university system that allowed me to take my first outside of the outside of the country trip and actually live in Copenhagen for six months, which just really has flipped me on my head in so many different ways and opened my mind to so many different ideas and even been able to relate to college students all over the world. I mean, I, the friends I've made on that trip are still with me to this day and probably some of my closest friends in life. And that's another really important thing is the social ability part of college, the way of socializing. College really helped me to make those connections and and be able to relate in that thought processing way. So that's a good thing about school, I'd say. And, you know, all the bad sides about it, there are many. But in the end, I think that it's a important growing up time in many, many kids' lives. And it helps develop you as a person. So there's a lot of that, too. Yeah, and even though we were talking about looking at the university as the modern factory, you know, churning out these debt slaves that are really uh, disillusioned and disenchanted with how they put how they'd use the last few years of their life to get these degrees that don't really have a lot of meaning. You know, I, I see that a, a lot with people who do really believe that getting that university degree has some intrinsic value. And I think the more people who are in higher education who are pursuing degrees who realize that that degree doesn't 
really have the value. It's those experiences that you have along the way, then the people who are in higher ed will be able to do better with it. But also more faculty are gonna wake up to this reality. And I know there's in, an increasing number of faculty who, who realize the unsustainable nature of higher education as a system. And they're starting to help to make things better for the students who uh, they find as allies and who ally with them. And so I think there's a lot of hope there too. But there's still a lot of people who don't want to be detracted and distracted from that whole process of getting the certification to get a job at the end of the university world. I think a lot of that is just going to fall away as they find that those job opportunities aren't there. And I remember I wrote in one of my term papers at the end of a, a semester about the unsustainability of higher education. And I pointed to how over 70% of the jobs created in the United States since the 2008 financial crisis didn't require a university education. And just that one fact there will change the whole landscape of higher ed because people who go to trade schools and put a few years into learning how to be a really good plumber or woodworker or carpenter are going to be so far ahead in their uh, ability to do useful work in society than people who got an undergrad, a master's, and a PhD in topics that maybe they were really passionate about and are really interesting. But as we've talked about on our show with the nature of complexity in society, those highly complex specialized roles are going to find a lot of limitations in the future. And so people with broader general skills are probably going to find a much easier time of fitting into this new economic reality. But other other news from the last few weeks that I thought was worth mentioning before we move on is, you know, we did that whole skit on extreme GDP. And yeah. now the U.S., is lifting its economy by 3% in July as part of a new way of calculating GDP. So I saw that. Yeah, so they totally <laughs> stole our idea and now they're going to include things like uh, you know movies that boost GDP and movie stars and research and development. Yeah, and they're going all the way back in time too, right? To like the 1920s or something like that. Yeah, so all the GDP will increase back in history. It's just it's going to be amazing. there's going to be so much GDP so there's going to be so much GDP increasing that it's just going to blow your mind. Extreme. Another story that I thought was worth bringing up really briefly here before we jump into thinking so many people was how U.S. greenhouse gas emissions are actually down to 1994 levels, their lowest point since 1994 at 5.3 billion metric tons of CO2 emitted. And that's just mind blowing to think that they're really almost at the Kyoto Protocol levels for greenhouse gas reductions just from economic contraction. And you know, when you're thinking of the issue of climate change, there's so much to be worried about. But at least from my perspective, the whole economic crash has been a really positive thing for greenhouse gas emissions. You know, there are a lot of people in the peak oil world who understood the nature of energy depletion. And there's a lot of people who, even though they're very concerned about the impacts of rising greenhouse gas emissions, they've said for a long time that all these IPCC models aren't going to have as big of an impact as people think they are because the whole economic system is just going to fall apart and unravel and keep that uh, oil from being burned. And it looks like that's actually what's happening um, from the more <laughs> data that's coming out that looks to be what is really happening. Now, we'll have to see over these next few years if greenhouse gas emissions continue to decline to like 1980s levels or something, which would be pretty mind-blowing if they did. But um, it seems to be headed that way. It does seem to be headed that way, which is probably a good thing for our environment. Um, not so good for our economy, but envir the environment is 
uh, definitely benefiting. So we've been very fortunate to receive some incredibly generous donations recently. That's absolutely right, Justin. This is the old microphone that we had before the donations kicked in to help me switch over to the microphone, which I'm on right now. And really hear the difference between the old microphone, the new microphone, and the voice quality. Now you can hear the lilting tones of my deep bass voice as I broadcast to the airwaves of cyberspace. And it's very, very lovely that you all out there have helped us here at the Action Environmentalist to up our game, to make it possible for us to, uh, you know, broadcast it's some, some nice quality stuff. Yeah, and that's completely our listener donations that have helped us do that. And so we have quite a few people to thank since our last episode who have kicked in to help. Uh, thanks to Simon in Norway for donating and supporting the show. A repeat uh, listener who sent us in some money is Jim out in uh, Washington. Really, thank you so much for that really super generous donation, Jim. Love it. Love it. Big time. Yeah, thanks for mailing a check in because that saves us those PayPal fees and it is pretty awesome. Another big time check that came in the mail is from Billion Ann out in Germany. Really, really probably one of our biggest donations. Thank you so very much for that fantastic contribution. Billy and Ann, thank you so much for that donation. That was just mind blowing. And that's going to help us do some really incredible stuff in the next few months. We're going to be bringing you some coverage from the Living Futures Conference from the Cascadia Green Building Council out here. So we're sending our correspondent, Kevin, out there to record hours and hours of audio on living building techniques that are in the world right now, living machines, appropriate technology, all that good stuff. And it's going to help Seth and me go up to New York in order to cover a new economy conference in talking about all of these issues that we covered at our new economy summit here in Vancouver a few months ago. That's right, Justin. You and I are going to be heading up to New York in middle of July, and we're going to be hanging out in New York City and going to that. The reroute conference held by the New Economics Institute. And we're if everything works out, we're going to be live streaming, covering that. We can't do it without you. And this is really a listener-driven podcast. All of your contributions, your comments, your f- friendly emails, your musical contributions all really go so very far to helping us have the show that you hear today. Yeah, and listeners have helped us coordinate some fantastic interviews that are coming in the next few months. So thanks to everybody who's helped out with that. And on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash extra environmentalist, everybody's just posting on there like crazy these days. So many incredible posts that we're getting and dialogue between people in the community on our Facebook page, all our tweets on twitter.com slash environmental, and also our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash environmentalist, where we are posting not only the segments from each of our shows, but also permaculture lectures from the Permaculture Convergence. You can also write us an email if you like to write emails at podcast at Extra Environmentalist. And you can also find a huge array of old shows, archive shows on extraenvironmentalist.com where you can look and find everything there all at your fingertips as well as send us bitcoins. Yeah, bitcoin donations or donations through our website and also people can give us a call and leave us a voicemail if you were listening to today's show and really connected with everything that we were talking about in regards to higher education, give us a call and tell us your story about higher education. Were you screwed over by higher education? Did you actually learn something in your higher education degree? Or are you pursuing something like how we were talking with Keo Stark about just going and making that t-shirt with the robot on it and learning the skills that build from 
pursuing that one task. You know, that's how we really started the show is Seth and I just said, you know, what if we made a podcast? And then it just kept growing out from there. That number for leaving us a voicemail is plus one nine one nine seven zero one. 9872. And those last four four digits are actually XTRA. So you can dial us on your touchtone phone and leave us a fantastic message like many of our listeners do. So once again, thank you so very much for listening to us to find your way out of that classroom and into some knowledge that you're going to find in the woods and find that higher educational degree in the forest because you know it's there. On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we'll be speaking with Chris Hedges and Morris Berman about what to expect from the failure of the American empire. I'm ready. These have become systems of death in a theological sense. And the fact is most people are not aware of what's happening. That's absolutely right. They remain utterly entranced by these electronic hallucinations, which not only have the ability to create a false reality, but are very effective at stopping them from thinking. And one of the things that's interesting about all that electronic stuff, the uh, hardware and the uh, imagery and so on, is that along with it comes a propaganda that says this is progress. To have this equipment and to have access to these images and so on, this is to know what's really going on. It's to be on the cutting edge. Hey, Big Bird. I'm really hungry here on Austerity Street. We should find somewhere to eat. That's absolutely right, Austerity Grover. Ah, we were so hungry here on Austerity Street that we opened up a taco stand. Taco Bell didn't like it very much that we were using their brand name, so we opened up Taco Fail. If you thought the 99-cent menu was too expensive, check out our new 9-cent menu. Our food was too expensive for our poor people on our street to handle, so we opened up the 9-cent menu. Guess where we get our meat from? Check out the new Roadkill Taco. It's an old t-shirt with Roadkill in it. But we flavor it with special spices that come out of the landfill. They're all sorts of tasty flavors, 
We have broken glass, and we have used tissues. Those are our all-time favorite. The crazy thing is we source from the same place as Taco Bell. We get the, our meat from the same place that Taco Bell does, but we just get there first. Sometimes we fight a little bit over the fresh deer kills, but they don't really like the squirrels. We like the squirrels. Whoa, did you hear that car screech, Big Bird? Quick, get to the meat collection van. Looks like we're gonna be eating fresh raccoon tonight. One of our favorite menu items is the chilled goopa. It's just a bunch of goop, all chilled. Mmm, chilled goop, it's delicious. Oh, hey, it's Cookie Monster. He wants to order some taco fail. Mmm, I have any more snuffleupagus meat? Oh, hey, Cookie Monster. We definitely have some snuffleupagus meat. It's kind of old and freezer burned, but it'll taste delicious. That's right, try our snuffleupagus chalupa. Only nine cents. Oh, my God, it's Sean Connery. Hello there. I thought I'd walk through this dilapidated street, but it looks like there's nothing here but puppets. That's not true, Sean. You have a taco fail stand here, can't you see? I don't know how I feel about eating off of a food cot. I mean, who knows where you're getting this food from? But for nine cents, who could go wrong? Give me one of everything. And five minutes later. Wow, my stomach feels exactly like how it does after I eat Taco Bell. Thanks for making a guest celebrity appearance, Sean. We'll see you later. Yeah, I was glad to. See you guys. Take a look at our whole business staff. Our accountant, the Count. <laughs> hey, Count, how many days has it been since our last death at our food cart? <laughs> One. With rising oil prices, it's slim pickings for the roadkill. Oh, hey, look at my pet puppy. He talks. Yo quiero taco fail. Ah, I've done a calculation and it turns out that if we turn the stoplight off in the middle of the town, our food supply will increase exponentially. <laughs> Good job, Count. Uh, that's why I got my MBA. Don't worry, guys. You can always count on me. <laughs> it's good to have MBAs looking out for us. So come on down to Austerity Street and get yourself a delicious helping of Taco Fail. Remember to use the code FAIL for a free smoothie.